Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. I didn't do that in first service. I thought maybe it'd be funny second, but it's not funny enough. So (laughs) thank you, Wes. I will not do it for third service. Uh, Hey, uh, good morning. My name's Chris. We're starting a new series uh, today called Tiny Gold Statues. And uh, as we are kicking off this series, it's always helpful to understand a little bit of what we're talking about overall before we get into what we're talking about specifically today. Uh, I don't know if you guys have had those experiences or or I guess it's a memory. Um, It may not necessarily be the first movie you remember seeing, but maybe there's like some movies that are specifically like milestones in your life. Uh, I think one of those movies for me that I will uh, always remember the feeling that I saw, the experience. of what it was like to watch for the very first time Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this opening scene, like as a kid, I remember watching it and my mom talking about how handsome Harrison Ford was and uh, still, still talking about how handsome Harrison Ford is. But this scene, I just remember like as a kid, I, I didn't see it in the theater. I remember watching it at home. We probably were watching it on TV or something. I don't know what, but there was just this like awe and amazement at his ability to navigate this cave and, and how brave and courageous and maybe reckless he was. And, and just the entire aspect of kind of this hunt specifically in the beginning was all about this tiny gold statue, this little idol. And I remember as I was thinking about this uh, over the last few weeks, getting ready for this series, um, you know, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, he, he chases after these things. He pursues these things because he loves history, right? I mean, it's like, it's all about the history and it belongs in a museum and all these different types of things. That's my Harrison Ford impression. (laughs) I'll keep working on my impressions. You guys, that's two in five minutes and they're not going well so far. So, but he, he like, overall, he has this like passion for history. And and so that's why he's chasing after this gold idol. Uh, His counterpart there, who you saw a clip of, um, ends up trying to kind of uh, leave him hanging and take the gold idol. And he's doing it because of the money. He wants the riches. He wants to melt down that gold and become wealthy. And then when they get out of the cave, there's an entire tribe of people there who see the idol and they all like bow down and start worshiping it because it is their God that they worship and they believe. And so whether it was the history, the treasure or the God, uh, it's interesting because all three of them essentially are idolizing this thing. And that's a little bit of what I want to talk about today, because when we think of idols, it's weird Uh, sometimes we talk about a topic, a a sermon series, and it's like, oh, we're going to talk about relationships. And everybody's like, oh yeah, I've got one of those. Uh, Or if we talk about politics, it's like, yeah, that's a crazy thing in the world right now. But when we talk about idols, I don't know that any of us are like, yeah, I've I've got some idols. Uh, I'm an idol worshiper. I'm an idolater. That's how I identify myself. Like, that's not really a common language or an idea for us. But what I want to do in this series is talk about the realities of how we actually do wrestle with this. And it just looks a little bit different than what we think. There's a, a definition that we're going to use throughout this series, and it's, uh, it describes it as this. It says, an idol is anything that you look at, 
and think in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. If I have that, I know that I'll have value. If I have that, then I'll feel significant or secure. An idol is anything that we look at and we kind of, uh, we view that thing as a way to be the source of meaning or importance or value or significance or safety or identity. And so all of a sudden now it's no longer about Indiana Jones, although it's always about Indiana Jones, but it's no longer about these gold treasures as much as it is these things that we look at all around us that give us a sense of identity. The other thing that's important to know is that idols are almost never bad things in our lives. An idol is a bad thing. Don't use that sound clip it, uh, snippet. But it's not like, oh, I idolize like evil things. They're usually good things that become ultimate things. They're good things that left in the right order, left in the right place. We relate to them in a healthy way. It's a good thing. But oftentimes these good things become the most important things in our lives. We tend to think of them as, you know, some other religion's God, but really it can be anything that's more important to you than, than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination, anything that you look to give you what only God is able to give you. And so there's a whole list of idols. You can Google idols and, and there's all kinds of different things that we can uh, kind of create into idols in our lives. And we don't all wrestle with the same ones, but you can idolize uh, your body image, work, helping others, independence, dependence. You can idolize money or things, achievement, religion, relationships, uh, racial or cultural identity, uh, suffering, um, career, uh, physical appearance, entertainment, sex. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can idolize. We can take these things that are either neutral or sometimes even good things in our lives, but all of a sudden we start viewing those things as this is where my identity is deeply rooted. This is the source of who I am. This is how I feel significant or secure. And that's when it starts to become a problem. And so I, I understand that it's a little bit difficult for us to identify some of these things, but here's a whole lot of questions that we're not going to answer today. But I want you to think about maybe some of the answers that would come up from these. What do you worry about the most? What, if you failed or lost it, would uh, make you feel hopeless? What do you use to comfort yourself when things are difficult? What do you do to feel better? What preoccupies you? What do you daydream about? What makes me feel the most self-worth? What are you the most proud of? What do you want to be known for? What do you lead with in conversations? What do you want to make sure that people know about you first? What unanswered prayer makes you question your trust or your reliance in God? What, what do you really want out of life? What would make you really happy? What is your hope in for the future? Again, what you would answer these questions with, they're probably all good things. But oftentimes, not always, oftentimes we start to value and worship and prioritize and tie ourselves to these good things and we make them ultimate things in our lives. It's an important thing for us to understand. I think as Christians, oftentimes we can kind of get to the place pretty quickly of like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm supposed to follow God and not other things. I'm supposed to have my identity in God and, and we can kind of navigate this, but this is the, the reality is that this is a challenge regardless of what your faith journey is like, where you're at uh, in your faith, what you believe or don't believe. When we start to 
give these things more power, more value, more room in our life than they need, when we start to attribute uh, things to these other aspects, when we start to kind of root our own identity in these different categories, it can become incredibly problematic. And it's interesting, as I've been getting ready for this, I've been reading a lot of different stuff and and trying to make sure that I, I am not an idiot uh, as I get ready for a new series. And, uh, and it was interesting because, you know, when we think about Christianity, uh, we would call it, uh, the term that we have is monotheism, one God. We believe that there is one God. And as you look in the scripture, and let me just say, that's, that's true. We believe that. That's not, I'm not going to trick you here. As you look in scripture, that's not really what it says. And it might feel a little bit unsettling to hear me say that, but actually, if you look at the Ten Commandments and the first one of the Ten Commandments, it starts off with, in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other, what? Gods before me. I think that there is this awareness that we are all going to worship something. I think we like to think in our minds, like we're either going to worship God or we're going to just live our day-to-day lives. But our hearts, as some authors have said, our hearts are idol-making factories. Our hearts are always wanting to worship, value, prioritize, find our identity in something. And so, yes, we believe in the one true God. We believe that only God is worth worshiping. But God knows that we are always going to be looking for that in other things, in other places, in other people. And so it's important that we talk about this because the truth is we all idolize something. Unlike the literal gold statue in Indiana Jones, we can't just remove it. We have to actually replace it. There's something in our hearts or in our minds that's attached to the the reality that if I have this relationship with this person, or if I'm this type of parent, or if I achieve these career goals, or if I, whatever it is, then my life will have meaning and I'll have value. Then I'll be someone worth something. And so we can't just pretend like those things aren't important to us and say, okay, I'm just going to not think that anymore. We actually have to replace those things with something that's more beautiful, more important, more incredibly powerful than those things could be. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at uh, not every idol, but there's some theologians and writers that talk about how there are four root idols, that everything else kind of flows out of these four root idols. The first one is approval, comfort, control, and power. And power is the one that we're going to be looking at today. And as you saw in the video, we actually have tiny gold statues here. Uh, most influential is what we're looking at today. Uh, we've got uh, most likable, most organized, most relaxed. We got all of them up here. I don't want to blind you guys as the light reflects off of these pure gold trophies that we have. Um, we're going to be talking about this, and it's interesting. And we kind of adjusted the names a little bit of them because I don't know that many of us would say like, "Oh yeah, I love power." Like power is the thing that I want, but there is this thing and it's a good thing to have influence and we want to have influence in our lives. We want to be influential people. I think a lot of us would love to be awarded the prize of most influential in our lives, in our workplaces. And while we might think of something, oftentimes we view it as success or influence or, or winning. It's possible that we're wrestling with the idol of power. 
And I want to just talk a little bit. I'm going to read some from my notes because I want to help us understand kind of the implications of what this actually might look like in our lives. I'll have some of these bullet points on the screen. But when we idolize power, we are willing to be burdened or to bear the full responsibility. And it's not because we are so kind and generous and thoughtful that I'll take it on my shoulders. It's because I am unwilling to trust anyone else with this. I have to make sure that this works, that this succeeds, that this moves forward. It's not just about winning. It's actually about not losing. And for some, there's a preoccupation with power in it. And it looks like confidence, but it's really a fear of loss and humiliation. The people around you, if you wrestle with this power idol, the people around you often feel used or manipulated because you tend to value what they can do for you more than you value who they are. And so you're always maneuvering people around like they're pawns. And and maybe as we talk about this, you can think of somebody at work. Maybe you can think of people that you know. Maybe you think of church experiences. There is no room on the world that is free from the misuse of power in some way. Your relationships are often built on what people can do or bring to increase your influence and power. People that struggle with this idol of power, they often, uh, their primary emotion that they wrestle with, that they struggle with is anger. Challenges and competition are primary ways that we experience power. And when we lose, anger flares up. Losing in any way, losing an argument, losing a a debate, losing a bid at work, losing whatever it might be. There's this anger that can flare up in those moments. It's not that competition is bad. Influence is good. Winning, competition, they're good things. But when we find our identity in those things, they've become an idol. In fact, someone who worships power may not even have winning as their primary motivation as much as it is to avoid losing. When they lose, they feel exposed or embarrassed So here's the thing. None of us want to feel like we're at the mercy of this idol. None of us want to feel like we're at the mercy of uh, our, our anger or of power. And power is not a bad thing. It's just a bad God. It's a bad idol. We were actually created to have power. God gave us power and told us to use it. If you look in Genesis and, and the beginning, the creation story, God created us in his image, a powerful God creating humans that have the ability to affect things around them. And he said that we're supposed to rule the earth. That speaks of power. He says we're supposed to subdue it, which is another. It's like you got to be strong to subdue anything. There's this aspect of how we were created to to actually have power. It's a good thing. And God gave us this capacity for good, to be able to influence the world around us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We weren't created to pursue power, though, as an end in itself, but as a way for us to, as we pursue God, the power that we have, we get to use to do his will on earth. We use the power on behalf of his kingdom, not our own. And I think that's where Satan started to tempt Adam and Eve when he whispered these ideas of you don't have to be less than God. You can be just as powerful. You can know just as much. You can make just as good judgments as God. There was this temptation for them. When sin came into the world and our brokenness showed up, we didn't lose our power. We just lost the relationship that provides the compass for our power. 
We're no longer building God's kingdom, but we're each building our own kingdom. And to do this, we'll use whatever distortion of power we can. And you guys have seen these show up. And again, every arena of life, misogyny, murder, war, slavery, poverty, speaking without listening, gossip, unforgiveness, and the list goes on. These are all misuses of power in our lives. And so it's important for us that we recognize and, and we look at this. And, and again, it's not that all of us struggle with this one thing as a primary idol in our lives, but it's good for us to be aware of these things because we have a twisted understanding of what power looks like and how we are supposed to use it. There's a passage in John chapter 13. It's a passage I don't think I've ever actually uh, taught on before. Uh, well, I guess I did this morning at nine o'clock. Uh, so it's the second time I've ever preached on this passage of scripture. Uh, but it's a really important uh, passage and it gives us an, an incredibly clear picture of power. It says this in verse one, it says, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father. So this is as they're preparing for the last supper and the crucifixion and all these things. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot to betray, uh, betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his what? Power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. It's so important for us to recognize that Jesus is aware. Uh, and he said in another passage, all power and authority has been given to me. Jesus was crystal clear at how much power he had. He was crystal clear on the authority that he had. He was crystal clear and it flowed because he knew who he was. He understood his identity was rooted. He understood the source of power. There was this, this clarity, this confidence that came from this understanding of his power. The father had given him everything. And so from that place of power, what did he do? Verse four, it says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. From Jesus's recognition of all of the power and authority that he had been given, his next step is to wash the disciples' feet. And it's super important, and, and I might say this too many times today, it might become annoying, but I just want to make sure we understand it. Jesus didn't set his power aside and wash the disciples' feet. It was with the power that he had that he chose to wash their feet. It's how he used his power. Does that make sense? It's not that he, he took off his power and set all of that aside and did this lowly thing. It's that through and because of and in the power that he recognized he had, the thing that made the most sense for him to do was to wash the disciples' feet. That's how he chose to exercise his power. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, bold move, by the way, say no to Jesus. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then, or then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, 
but my hands and my head as well. Jesus stepped in to wash their feet. It's, it's an interesting thing. As you think a couple thousand years ago in a different culture than what we have here, there's something that you need to understand about Jesus washing the disciples' feet in this moment that is really important for us to get today in our culture. Do you know how people viewed others' feet at this time? Exactly the same as we do today. <laughs> it was gross. They wore Birkenstocks all the time. And they weren't even embarrassed about it. They were filthy, wounded, cut up. I mean, it was exactly what, you, there were no paved roads. I mean, it was just, it was the task that the lowest servants, the lowest slaves would be in charge of this task. It was shocking and offensive that Jesus would do this. And it's interesting because Peter gets upset about it. And there's a sense, as I've read it, again, for a lot of times growing up, I've read my Bible and the Gospels and these stories, and I'm familiar with these stories, and I'm like, oh, man, Jesus, or Peter loves Jesus so much, he doesn't want him to, like, wash his feet because he respects him so much. And, and again, as I've continued reading and studying different um, texts and books on this topic, um, what's actually happening here is not that Peter <laughs> has so much reverence for Jesus, but at this point in time, if you remember, Jesus is uh, considered to be the disciples' rabbi. And my honor as a student is tied to my rabbi's honor. I'll put it this way. Some of you guys went to nice schools. Anybody here go to like USC or UCLA or, okay, none of you went to nice schools. Okay, never mind. It only worked in the first service with the early risers. I wonder if that's connected. But you know those kind of people, right? It's like you're talking about what you're going to make for dinner and somehow they slip in their college education into the conversation. Some of us went to Riverside Community College for seven years. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, but there's this thing where some of us like to be associated with a, a person or an idea and it, it, we get this sense of honor or respect that comes because I went to that school, because I studied under that person, because I'm in a relationship with that person. It, it actually means something about me because of who they are. And it's the same thing. And so when Jesus bends down and begins washing the disciples' feet, and Peter says, no, Lord, don't, don't wash my feet, it's not because he's protecting Jesus' honor. He's trying to protect his own. If you wash my feet, that's embarrassing for all of us. What are they going to say when they find out that I have a rabbi that washes my feet? How are they going to respect me when they hear that my rabbi washes my feet? How is anyone going to listen to me if, if that's how my rabbi acts? There is this preservation of power and influence and, and the ability for him to have a voice or a status. And I just, I have to wonder, as we read this story, how uncomfortable are you and I when we read this story? And you're probably a better person than I am. But as I read this story, I immediately start trying to find the loopholes. I'm like, yeah, we should serve others. So let me get as much power as I can so that I can serve others. Let me pursue as much success and influence and let me get as many minions as I possibly can. And then I'm going to change things for good. When I'm able to attain more, when I'm able to collect more, then I'll be able to use it to have a good impact in the world. We're always trying to find these loopholes, and we're doing the same thing that Peter was. They're saying, no, God, please don't do it this way. 
because then I'm going to have to do it this way. If you are serving, then I'm going to have to serve. And I think Jesus understood it. It says in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. And I have to imagine, I wasn't there, but I have to imagine that they were like, yeah, we get it. Not happy about it. Yeah, you've made it incredibly clear what you've done for us. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Essentially saying, none of you are better than me. And if I've done this, you need to do this. It's such a, a crazy visual, it's a crazy lesson, it's a crazy experience, but also it was just, it was life. I know that we could probably get into our heads and argue like, well, it was just like a metaphor. We should metaphorically wash each other's feet. But the reality is, is that none of us want to do this. And the only time that we really do it is, you know, every once in a while towards the end of the year, we start feeling charitable and it's like, okay, let me figure out how can I serve other people who are less fortunate or how can I give of myself to care for? It's that time of season. I'm feeling it in my heart. The power of Christmas. My heart has grown three sizes this month. <laughs> There's these times when we feel it, but Jesus, he says, this is the example that I have given you. This is what I expect you to do. This is how I expect you to live. He did it to serve them in that moment, but also to give them a strategy and instructions on how they should use their power in the future, their influence in the future. There's another example from Jesus's life where the disciples were misunderstanding and arguing about power. And this one was kind of especially embarrassing because two of the disciples' mom got involved which is like nobody wants their mom to get involved, especially when they're an adult. In Matthew chapter 20, they're walking along, and it says, the mother of Zebedee's sons, so this is James and John, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. There's this acknowledgement of like, Jesus, you are the king. You have a kingdom. You are our savior. You are our Messiah. You are our God. And so also will you give them like the second and third most powerful seats in your kingdom? Even in the, the correct understanding of the power and truth of who Jesus is, there's still this like, and also can we get a little bit of that goodness, that power in our lives? It's an acknowledgement of who Jesus was and a request for power in such a weird way. It goes on in verse 24. It says, when the 10 heard about this, the other disciples who weren't there in that moment, when the other 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They're like, are you kidding me? We walked away for one minute and you're making a play for power. 
And I think that's how it works in a lot of our lives is we see someone using power in an unhealthy way. We see people abusing power. We, we see bad examples of power or, or maybe even just people like trying to kind of navigate their way into a position of more influence or more whatever it is. And there's a sense of like, well, if they get it, then I should get it. Or I should make sure I get it so they don't get it because they're evil. There's this, this thing of we are always trying to outcompete others. And Jesus, after they're all upset, he calls them together and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and, and their high officials exercise authority of them. And then he says the weirdest sentence. It's not a, it doesn't sound like a complete sentence, but it's just like point blank, four words. Not so with you. You've seen it. We all have seen it. The leaders of the Gentiles and the rulers and they use their power and their authority and their influence and they hold it over people and they make sure that what they need is being taken care of and what they want is happening. And, and, and let me just make it really clear. Not so with you. If you are following Jesus, if you're following my kingdom, if you want to have a place in my kingdom, that's not how it's going to work. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Power is not a bad thing, but it becomes an idol when we start to believe that if I get power, or the more I get, or the more influence I get, the more value I'll have the more meaning I'll have, the more ability I have to do good stuff. So let me just keep accumulating this power and this influence in my world. Jesus says, not so with you. Jesus lived his life. He calls us to a different relationship with power, a a redeemed or a restored understanding of how we're supposed to use power. And it's more beautiful than anything we could imagine on our own. And we know it's beautiful because we watch movies about people that use their power in this self-sacrificial way. And we weep because it's so moving. It's so beautiful. We read stories about people like Mother Teresa, who commits her life to serving the least and the lowest in the world. And and there's a sense of like, that is beautiful. And we all sincerely agree. And then we go to try and get as much power as we can in our own lives and in our own worlds. We're invited to have a power that flows from our identity, from our security, and who we are as children of the king. It's a power that's supposed to be used for others, and it serves God's kingdom, not our own. There's a a priest, a theologian, an author. Um, He was Dutch, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher his name, but here's the most American way that I can say it. Henry Nguyen. Uh, And he wrote uh, 39 books uh, before he passed away. And he wrote about this topic a lot and the power that we have and the way that we love others and the way that we use who we are to serve and to care for the people in our lives. I'm probably going to quote him a lot throughout this series, but this is one of his writings. He said, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it's that power offers us an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people, and it's easier to own life than to love life. 
there is this simplicity that comes with power. And in the most basic way, it just kind of says, I don't have to do that. I don't have to serve them. I don't have to show up there. I don't have to speak that way. I don't have to subject myself to these things. And these are all the human ways that we use power and influence. And Jesus said, not so with you. You don't have to be there. So you use your power to choose to be there. You don't have to listen. So you use your power to choose to listen. You don't have to serve, but you use your power to choose. It's not setting it aside, but it's actually how we're called to use it. And Henry Nguyen lived this out. He didn't just write about it. And all of his success and accolades and respect that he garnered in his lifetime, he became um, this incredibly respected professor at Harvard. One of those schools that somebody name drops, right? And in the midst of an incredibly successful career at Harvard, he retired and spent the rest of his life living as a pastor and caregiver at a home for adults that had mental disabilities. He spent the rest of his life, all of his influence, all of his wisdom, all of his writings, all of his knowledge, all of the credibility that he had, he lived in a home for adults that had special needs, a place that a lot of people don't even like to remember those types of things exist, a place that somebody might be willing to serve for an hour or two every few months or a year. That's how he chose to use everything that he had. It was this beautiful example, this picture for all of us of saying, what does it look like for me to use all that God has given me today? Not like, let me wait until I accumulate some more and then I'll be able to really do some stuff for God. But what has God given me today and how can I serve others with it? It's not choosing to set away, set aside my power and influence. It's using it on behalf of God's kingdom. Any power that we get should be used for serving others and helping God's kingdom break into this world. And we do that through service. Any time that you or I think, I shouldn't have to, I don't have to, it's an opportunity for us to say, but I'll choose to. That's how I'm going to use my time. That's how I'm going to use my energy. That's how I'm going to use my influence. That's how I'm going to use my power. We don't have time to look at all these passages, but all throughout the New Testament, it is full of examples of this. In Romans 12, these are paraphrases. In Romans 12, it says, if you have resources, you should use them to serve others. In Galatians 5, it says, if you have freedom, you should use it to serve others. In Galatians 6, it says, if you have capacity, you should bear another's burdens. In 1 Peter 4, it says, if you have a spiritual gift, you should use it to serve others. In Ephesians 4, it says, if you can work, you should work so that you can share with others. In Ephesians 5, it says, if you're married, you should serve your spouse. The list goes on and on. Every ounce of freedom, every ounce of skill, every ounce of money, every ounce of position, every ounce of title, all throughout the scripture, when the Apostle Paul and the other writers in the New Testament were trying to help us understand, okay, so we have the Gospels, which is how Jesus lived and, and how he interacted and spoke and taught. And now practically, what does that look like for us day in and day out? They just kept saying, well, everything we, sh we have, we should just use it for others. We should serve others. We should love others. We should choose to use all that we have, whether it's a little or a lot of money, 
a little or a lot of power, a little or a lot of influence, whatever it is, we channel it through serving others. This is what Jesus modeled for us and how he instructed us to live. The call for Christians isn't to use power or sorry, to use people to help ensure our power, but it's for us to use any shred of power that we have to serve others, to willingly go to the back of the line. We should not pursue power or influence as an end, but we use the power and influence that we have on behalf of God, on what he's calling us to do, how he's calling us to live. This is a day in and day out decision that we have to make because we're constantly faced with other opportunities to say, I don't think I should have to do that. I don't think I should have to be a part of this meeting. I don't think I should have to listen to my kid talk about Pokemon. I don't think I should have to, you know, it's like whatever the thing is, it's the sense of like, I think I'm, I don't think I should have to do that. Not so with you. Not so with me. So each week of this series, uh, it's an important piece for us just to not only to hear maybe the truth of these root idols and what they might do in our lives, but for us to be intentional about replacing those with something else, replacing them with something more beautiful, which Jesus exemplified in his life as he washed the disciples' feet and so much more, replacing them with the truth of scripture. And so each week we're going to have a scripture that we want to memorize together. And this week's is that passage from Matthew 20, not so with you. If you're an overachiever, you can memorize the entire verse. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. But if you're like me and you struggle to memorize anything, not so with you. This is what we're called to as followers of Jesus. And again, if you're here and, and you're not sure what you believe in, in regards to faith, I just want you to know that the pursuit of power is going to destroy your relationships. It will destroy your soul. None of us can actually handle power in a healthy, holistic way outside of the framework that God created it to be used in to serve others, creation, and ultimately to serve him. Let's pray together. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.